The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, we need you desperately. Every hour we need you to speak into our lives, into our hearts, to remind us of the good news of Christ and to direct our lives. And so God, we come expecting you to do that again today, Lord. Pray that you would that you would soften our hard hearts, Lord. That we would be able to hear your message for us today from your word. We know, God, that this is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And so, God, we pray you be faithful to that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please open up to Acts chapter 22. It's page 932 in the Red Bible and page 1210 in the Children's Bible. This week, my father is visiting me from Kansas City, and last night I was reminded of a tradition that my father has started, a legacy that he has passed on to me, and it is the legacy of giving our sons bad haircuts. (laughs) Not just bad haircuts, but free bad haircuts. When I was growing up, my dad gave me bad haircuts, and now as my sons grow up, I give them bad haircuts, and if the Lord so blesses, my sons will give their sons bad haircuts, and their sons' sons will give bad haircuts for free, right? And that, of course, is why we invest in that big bottle of hair gel, because as the Bible says, hair gel covers over a multitude of bad haircuts or something like that, I'm paraphrasing, right? But sometimes the haircut is so bad that gel can't cover it up. I remember one time in junior high, I was getting ready to go to the roller skating rink that night. It was a Saturday. That's where we went to go hang out with our friends, but also try to work up the courage to say something to a cute girl. And so I went to my, my dad. I think my dad gave me a haircut that time. I could be wrong, but, but I got this haircut, and it was a hideous haircut. Um, it was a haircut that has been termed a bowl cut. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with this if you've seen Dumb and Dumber, but basically what it is, it looks like someone put a bowl on your head and shaved below the bowl and then took it off. And so you look like a great big mushroom, okay? And this particular time, not only was it unflattering because it was a bowl cut, but it was just a really, really bad haircut. The sides were very, very close to the head and the top was very crazy. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I don't want to go out and be seen in public. But me and my friend Jacob made plans to go to the roller skating rink that night. And so we went out. We had fun. Of course, I was insecure all the night. Um, and then afterwards, we stepped out um, and we were outside the roller rink waiting for his mom to come and pick us up. And there was a group of junior high boys that were bigger than me, as I remember, that came and started making fun of me, making fun of my haircut. And this one guy actually started to pick a fight with me. And he wanted to fight because he thought my haircut was so ridiculous, which I don't blame him because I thought it was ridiculous as well. But, but he started bouncing around and pumping his fists. And they were, I remember there were kids circled around us. And I was scared because I wasn't really a fighter. And I don't know if they started chiding, chanting, fight, fight, fight. But I remember it was, it was getting loud. And there I was, this guy who doesn't really fight with people. And this guy's pumping his fists. And, and my friend Jacob comes up and says, hey, Dan, my mom came. And so I said, uh, I'd love to fight, but I'm sorry, I got to go, right? So I left, which was uh, God's wonderful providence. 
You know, it has been said that adulthood is an extension of junior high in many, many ways. You know, we're still dealing with insecurities of who we are. We're still wanting to be the cool kid at the lunch table. We still want all these people to like us. But one way that life, adulthood, is an extension of junior high is we still have to deal with bullies. We still have to deal with unwarranted attack from other people, people that want to come after us for no good reason. If you remember, when the Apostle Paul came to Jerusalem, the elders in Jerusalem warned him. He, they said, there are Christian Jews in this town that do not like you, that, that want to hurt you. Because they think you're preaching against Israel, against the temple, and against the law. And Paul wasn't preaching against those things, but he was preaching that the fulfillment of those things was Christ and his church. And so these Jews were out, Jewish Christians were out to get him. And so Paul goes through this ritual trying to win their favor, but in the end they, they, they say that he brought a Gentile, a non-Jew, into the Jewish part of the temple, which was untrue. And so they took him out, they start beating him, literally to death. And before he is about to die, the Roman guards come in, break up the fight, and they take Paul and they say, why are they so angry with you? And they can't hear because the mob is just going crazy. And so these Roman guards pick Paul up and they carry him back to the barracks. And as he has been carried back to the barracks, Paul asks him if he can speak with the crowd. They grant him permission, I think mostly because they're still trying to figure out what did Paul do wrong. And so Paul stands and he gives his testimony of how he was saved, of how he came to faith in Christ. And near the end of his testimony, he tells about how Jesus said to him that he was to go to the Gentiles to share the good news of the gospel. And at this, the crowd gets angry again and they actually say, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. As we continue in today's passage, and really through the rest of the book of Acts, what we're going to see is that Paul, time and time again, is going to be found not guilty, not guilty, not guilty by the Roman rulers. Even later in today's passage, we'll see the Pharisees start defending Paul and saying, this isn't such a bad guy after all. And yet Paul, at every turn, suffers unwarranted attack from others for proclaiming the gospel. You know, many of you here today know what it's like to be attacked for no good reason. Attacked maybe by a coworker or by a family member or by a friend. Maybe because you had a bad haircut or maybe because they misunderstood something you said or maybe because you are a Christian and you love Jesus and you think Jesus is the only way to heaven. But all of us at times have faced unwarranted attacks from others based on slander or speculation or gossip. And so today as we look at Paul's story, Paul who can definitely understand what you're going through, we want to ask the question, how do we stand strong in these times? How do we stand strong when we are being attacked for no good reason? And the first way we'll see here is that we stand strong through claiming our rights. So we're going to dig into the scripture now, and we're actually going to start in verse 21 just to give us some context. But today's passage starts in verse 23. Again, Paul is sharing his testimony with the Jews. Verse 21. This is Paul speaking. And he, Jesus, said to me, Paul, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him 
to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out what they were shouting against him like this. Now, I have gone, undergone a lot of examinations in my life. Written examinations, physical examinations, endurance examination, but I have never undergone a flogging examination. Have you ever undergone a flogging examination? I can imagine it would be the worst type of examination possible. But basically what this is, is it's a torture device trying to extract truth from the Apostle Paul. And what they would do is they would take his arms and they would either wrap it around a pole or they would stretch it out in some way and they would take a whip full of rock and broken glass and they would rip, rip it around his body and then pull it off, permanently scarring and maiming him. And so this was serious business. They wanted to examine him by flogging. Verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. As is obvious from these verses, Roman citizenship was a highly prized status. It was usually given to the elite of the community, those who maybe were in government that, that did something amazing for their empire. Sometimes it was also bought by very, very rich people, but it was not customary for a lot of people to be Roman citizens. It was only select few. They actually gave it out as a prize to those who, who served in the military and then retired. They would become Roman citizens. And then if you were a Roman citizen, your children could be born as Roman citizens as it was for the Apostle Paul. Now, Roman citizens had certain privileges that other people did not. For example, they had freedom, which is something we take for granted, but they had, they had freedom. They were not slaves. They could also vote, and they could hold government positions. But it, there's far more pluses to Roman citizenship than that, and one here we see is to relieve yourself from being examined by flogging. And so Paul says here, he asks this rhetorical question in verse 25, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And the obvious answer is no. It was illegal to punish a Roman citizen without a trial. That was one of their benefits. And if you flogged a Roman citizen without trial, you yourself could be subject to flogging. And so you see this, this, this guard backpedaling quickly, going to his superiors and saying, what are we doing? This man is a Roman citizen. And so what we see in this account is that Paul claims his rights, his rights as a Roman citizen, rights that were given to him by the providence of God. And Paul does this to protect himself from torture and maybe even death. Now, we may understand this pretty easily. This may seem like common sense to us to use our rights to, to protect ourselves. But I think sometimes it gets confused with Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount where he tells us to turn the other cheek. And so for Paul to turn the other cheek, 
Does it mean that, that, that after they whip his backside, Paul would turn over and say, take my front side? What does it mean to turn the other cheek? And what does it mean to claim your rights? Well, when Jesus teaches us to turn the other tree, cheek, it is not a condemnation of self-defense or self-preservation. But what it condemns is personal, individualistic retaliation. It means to not return a punch with a punch. Or for most of us, it means not to return an insult with an insult. I think Paul's emphasis or Jesus' emphasis of what it means to turn the other cheek is summarized a few verses later in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let me give you an example of when I did not turn the other cheek. So a couple weeks ago, we had a softball game, and we went into extra innings, and we were the away team, and so they were up. It was the 10th the inning or whatever, 8th uh, inning. I guess we played seven innings. And the other team hit a walk-off inside the park home run. And there was a plate to plate, and as a guy rounded third, he was coming home, and, and, the, and their bench started cheering. It was obvious he's going to be safe. And so they start coming out, and they start jumping up and down and celebrating, which is perfectly fine, normal, and acceptable. That happens. You should celebrate those things. But then one of the guys uh, in that crowd started calling out our catcher, a 40-year-old guy, one of the nicest guys in the world. And he says, how do you like us now? Boom! And he was doing all this stuff like that. And I'm like, I don't like this guy, right? And so we started going through shaking hands. And when I got to his hand, I dropped my hand intentionally because I didn't want to shake his hand, right? I didn't want to be the better man. I wanted to punish him. Right? Show disrespect to him. And their team saw it. And they're like, ooh. But they got over it pretty quick because they won the game. So, but, but that's not turning the other cheek. That was, that's not me trying to protect myself or protect someone that I, I love or protect a human being. What I'm doing there is I'm trying to punish the other person. And that's what Jesus teaches against when he tells us to turn the other cheek. That we should not punish other people, but that we should protect ourselves is perfectly fine by claiming our rights. And that's what Paul does here. Now Paul, not in the spirit of punishing the abuser, but self-defense, claims his rights as Roman citizen to preserve his life and to promote justice. And so how do we apply this to our lives today? To claim our rights and yet at the same time to turn the other cheek. Well, kids, if you're here today, you go to school, and my guess is there are times where people bully you, or maybe your brothers or sister bully you. And so what does it look like to, to, to claim your rights but also turn the other cheek in this situation? Well, it means not to bully them back, right? Not, not, to, not to go back at not to punch back, not to, not, to, not to criticize them back, but to go them, to them when things settle and say, please stop doing that. And if they won't listen, it means claiming your rights as a, as a child or as a student and going to your teacher or your parents and saying, we're having this problem, can you help us? Or, or for adults, maybe husbands and wife. This means that when your spouse says something critical of you, hurtful of you, you don't reach into your bag of their failed history, you know that bag that I'm talking about, that bag of their failed history, pull something out and throw it in their face, Right? But it means that you respond to them with gentleness and love and respect. And if God doesn't heal that, it means you go to someone else, whether it be a spiritual mentor or an elder or to counseling to seek to heal that relationship. Or maybe you're an employee and you live or you work in a very hostile workplace. 
What does it mean to turn the other cheek in that situation? Does it mean to simply let it all go and let it be and let the status quo ride? Well, of course not, because God calls us to fight for justice. So it would be to go to the instigator, to try to, to, try to talk to them about the, the negative habits that are, that, are, that are creating this workplace. And if they refuse, then going up the chain of authority in order to try to make the, the workplace a, a good place to work, a safe place to work. And so when we are being attacked, we can stand strong by claiming our rights and humility, not to punish others, but to defend justice and righteousness with gentleness and love. The second way that we stand strong in the midst of, of attack is by claiming our sin. Now this is not a method that the world around us would promote because it shows weakness, but this is exactly what God calls us to do. Again, the Roman tribunal is trying to figure out what's wrong with Paul, why everyone hates Paul, and they've gone through many methods to get there, and they're unsuccessful, and so finally they decide that they're going to send Paul back to the Jewish council. They call a quick meeting of the Jewish council to have them interrogate Paul to try to find out, okay, why is everybody so mad at Paul? And that's where we pick up verse 30. It says, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and, command, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers. I love that Paul says brothers to these guys who are persecuting him. He says, brothers, I lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Just a side note, this high priest Ananias is different than the one back in the Gospels. This high priest Ananias historically has been noted as a ruthless high priest. He had been brutal with people, violent with people. He actually stole money from the priests. And as we see here, he's not hesitant to, to bully people. He, he commands a man to strike Paul in the mouth. Now, remember, Paul at this time is about 60 years old, and so he's not really able to defend himself much. But that was the high priest Paul was sitting before. Verse 3, it says, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. This term, whitewashed wall, is a reference to graves. You see, they would paint graves white to, to mark them as, as a place of dead bones, but it would also make it look kind of pretty, kind of spruce it up. And so what Paul is saying is that you are a group of people who may look pretty on the outside, but inside are dead bones. You apply the law to me, but you don't apply it to yourself. Verse 4. Those who stood by said, would you reveal, revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul was unaware that the one who gave the command was the high priest. There could be several reasons for this. Again, if, if you're 60 years old and you took your glasses off, you probably have trouble figuring out who is who. It was probably a commotion as, as people were stirred and very angry. Also, it was kind of it was a, it was a impromptu meeting that, that the Roman government had called together so that the, the high priest probably didn't have his special robes on. 
And so Paul, Paul speaks out against the injustice that was happening, and he didn't realize that it was the high priest. But what is important to observe here is that Paul not only applies the Scripture to the Jewish leaders, but Paul also applies the Scripture to himself. First, he confronts the leaders, saying that they should not strike him without a trial, which is inconsistent with Leviticus 19.15 and really the character of God. But then he also applies Scripture to himself. He references Exodus twenty two twenty eight, which says, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. And so Paul confesses his sin. He repents. He says, you're right. I should not have said that. I did not realize that it was the high priest. You know, I don't know about you, but I find it far easier to apply Scripture to other people than I do, to find, than I do applying Scripture to myself. You know, when I, when I hear a good sermon or when I read a good book, you know, I often think, oh, so-and-so needs to read this or so-and-so needs to hear this sermon. Do you ever do that? And, and, and that's not wrong. I mean, sometimes you do want to give that to those people, but what happens is I let it bypass my heart and direct it straightly towards them because it's so much easier to apply Scripture to someone else than it is to apply it to myself or even just to, to judge other people. It's easier to judge other people than it is to judge myself. Let me give you two quick examples. My wife and I, we, we both have cell phones, and when I call her, uh, I, I'm hoping that she will pick up, right? And so if I call and I call and I call and she doesn't pick up, I start to get frustrated. I think to myself, okay, this is why we have cell phones, right? So that we can be reached no matter where we are, and I start to get frustrated. But when I am on the other end of that, when I don't pick up the phone, when I don't answer the text... Guess what? I got a whole bunch of excuses. I got a whole bunch of reasons why I didn't pick up the phone or answer the text. Can anyone relate to this? Or one more example. I don't like judgmental people. You know, we are, we are called to judge people's actions, right? You judge whether what they did was right or wrong. God calls that discernment. That's a good thing. But what judgmentalism is, is when you discern that they did something wrong and you say, I want nothing to do with you. That's judgmentalism, right? You do this. I can't believe you do this. I don't want anything to do with you, right? And so what happens, the irony of this is I am judgmental of judgmental people. I avoid Sinful, judgmental people because they avoid sinful people. I put others at arm's length. I put judgmental people at arm's length because they put other sinners at arm's length. You know why I'm judgmental about judgmental people? Because it is so much easier to apply the scriptures to someone else than it is to myself. Friends, it is not difficult. As a matter of fact, it's pretty easy to apply the Bible to someone else in your family to a friend, to a politician, or to a celebrity. That is so easy to do. You know what's hard to do? To apply the Bible to yourself. And that's what Paul does here. In the midst of this unjust persecution, Paul does not excuse his sin by saying, listen, bad things are happening that shouldn't be happening. But Paul claims his sin. He owns his sin. Do you do this? Do you own your sin? Let me ask it this way. When you are crabby, when you're ornery, do you say, it's my kids' fault. They're the ones who made me like this. Or when you roll your eyes at someone, maybe physically or just in your head, do you blame the other person? Saying, you know, if they made more sense, I wouldn't be so frustrated. Or kids, when you lie to your parents, do you say, you know what, I wouldn't lie to my parents 
if they just understood what I was going through. We are experts at identifying other people's sins and applying Scripture to them. But we must first apply it to ourselves, to claim our sin, to own our sin, to blame no one else for our sin, and to repent of our sins. So when we are objects of attack, unwarranted attack, even warranted attack, we must stand strong by claiming our rights for justice and self-defense, but also claim our sin, applying God's word not only to those that are oppressing us, but also applying God's word to ourselves. And finally, and most importantly, we stand strong by claiming our Christ. Verse 6 says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now what Paul does here is absolutely brilliant. Paul understands who his audience is. He's looking. He's, he's taking note of it. It actually says it here. And what he's noting is that in this, in this council of Jews, there are two sects of Jews. There are the Pharisees and there are the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the conservative, Bible-believing Jews. And then the Sadducees were the moderate or liberal ones. They actually only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament which is called the Pentateuch. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in spirits. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in much. But one of the things that they did not believe in, which is center point here, is they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. If you grew up in children's church, you probably heard, do you know why the, why the Sadducees are so sad, you see? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're so sad, you see, right? But this was a point of contention. And so what Paul does here is he surfaces this extremely polarizing issue, this hotly debated topic of the resurrection. And it's kind of like he throws this grenade in and then walks away to watch the fireworks, okay? Verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And so the Pharisees respond first. They contend sharply. And believe it or not, they actually start to defend the apostle Paul. And first they say, we find nothing wrong with this man. And then they add fuel to the fire by saying, what if a spirit or an angel spoke with him? Now remember, the Sadducees do not believe in angels or spirits. And so now the fun begins. The council turns into like an 80s episode of Cops or Jerry Springer show, right? They get, they get going bonkers. Verse 10, it says, and when the dissension became violent, that is, physically violent. I can just, this is somewhat comical to me. I can imagine them strangling each other going, I'll show you if there's a resurrection from the dead. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, the Roman authorities, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Those poor Roman soldiers. They cannot get a straight answer to save 
their life. First, they go to Paul in the midst of the right. Why are they beating you up? They can't hear. It's too crazy. Then they try to interrogate him through scourging, and that fails because he's a Roman citizen. And now they take him to the Jewish council, and because they can't agree on the resurrection of the dead, they have to rescue him out of there, and so they don't know what is going on. But the good news is that Paul is rescued to safety. Now Paul's answer of being on trial because of the hope of the resurrection was not only a brilliant answer at evading persecution, but it was also a true answer. When Paul says in verse 6, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. When he says that, that is completely true. Although I'm guessing many of his attackers would not say the same thing. You see, if it were not for the resurrection of Jesus, Paul would have never been a Christian. And if the resurrection of Christ was, was not the good news of Paul, he would not have gone on missionary journeys to tell people about Christ who had lived and died and rose again from the dead. The resurrection is why Paul was able to say those famous words, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Dying is not gain unless Christ is raised from the dead. Because if Christ has not been raised from the dead, neither would Paul be raised from the dead. Friends, if the resurrection of Christ is true, it is not only the most significant historical fact in Christianity, but it is the most important event in human history. Because if the resurrection is true, then it is the source of all of humanity's hope and every human's joy and our desire for salvation. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. You can read along on the screen. He says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, talking about Adam, came death, and by a man, that is Jesus, has, also come, has come also the resurrection of the dead. Friends, it is not enough to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. It is not enough to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It is not enough to believe that he was sinless throughout his entire life. It is not enough even to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That is not enough. You must believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. You know, often around Easter time, we will say Christ has risen, which is completely true. Paul actually says it in that 1 Corinthians passage. But the good news is even gooder than that. It's not just that Christ has risen, it's that Christ is risen. That Christ is alive today. If you remember one thing from today, just remember this. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Cling to your Christ in your suffering, in your difficulties, in your persecution, because your Christ is not dead. He is alive. And he is not only alive, but he is also with you. That night, the Romans took Paul back to the barracks. And then we read on in verse 11. Look with me if you would. Verse 11 says, The following night, the Lord stood by him. 
stood by Paul. Let's not pass this up. This is a part of a passage that we could so quickly read over. But the implication of this has such cataclysmic power. The Lord stood by Paul. Jesus, the Christ, the long-awaited one, the one who created heaven and earth, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who died and rose again and ascended into heaven, that Jesus, that night, stood by Paul. What a glorious comfort that must have been to him. This term stood in the Greek is ephistemi, which is not only translated to stand, but can also be simply translated was present, that the Lord was present with Paul. The verse continues. The Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Our children are still pretty young, and like any kids, they get afraid of the dark at night. We all did. Some of us still do. I sometimes still do. And our bedtime routine at night is to take them upstairs, to get them into bed, to cuddle with them, to hug, kiss them, pray with them, talk about the day, things like that. And when we get done with that bedtime routine, uh, Trish and I try to head downstairs to just have some time together to watch TV or clean the dishes or whatever. But, but the majority of the nights, as we try to sneak down the stairs, we will hear this simple cry. Can you sit in the hallway? Can you sit in the hallway? And so the, we'll turn the hallway light on. Their lights will be off and we will sit there in the hallway, usually checking email or reading or something like that. And the kids can just barely, out of their bedroom, from their bed, out of their door, can just barely see a part of us, like a leg or, or an arm or something, to see that we are actually there. And when they know that we are there with them, it drives out all fear. It gives them great courage and great comfort, and they can fall asleep quickly. You know, when Paul was taken back to the Roman barracks, I can imagine how scared he may have been. He had been brutally beaten. He didn't know what was going on. He didn't know what was going to happen in his future. And I can imagine that the Lord's presence in that Roman barracks gave Paul a similar comfort. And it was the Lord's presence that gave Paul the power to fulfill his exhortation, which was to take courage. And it was God's promise that he would testify to Christ in Rome, just like he did in Jerusalem, that gave him great joy, because that was his God-given desire. And so let me ask, what are areas you are being attacked that you need to stand strong, that you need to take courage is it an abusive spouse or a bully in your life? Maybe it's a, a, a person in your family that's just a little bit off that, that always seems to get on your nerves or attack you. Maybe it's not even a person. Maybe it's a situation. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's a financial destitute crisis that you have or a, a grim medical diagnosis or some sort of physical suffering. There's a whole host of things that, that can attack you. Who are you perceiving attack from? Jesus is with you and says, take courage. You see, the good news of the Scriptures is not that the Lord was present with Paul, but the Lord is present with all who trust 
in him. Let me end with this. In preaching class in seminary, one of the things that we were taught is that we are to kind of memorize our final line. Because our final line, um, well, they tell us it for two reasons. One reason is so that we actually end our sermon. Because if you don't have a final line, sometimes you just go on and on and on. But the other reason is because this is to be the main emphasis, the main point which you're trying to leave people with, the main nugget of information, the summary of everything that you've said. And so they give us this great emphasis on the last line that you say. Memorize it and say it with power because this is what, you, this is what people will remember and this is what is important. When we look at the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew ends with the Great Commission, right? He's ending with that thing that is most important. But what is amazing, at the end of the Great Commission, he ends with a great promise from Jesus. And these are the very last words of the Gospel of Matthew. These are the words that he wants the disciples of Christ to take with them. He ends his book, Matthew ends his book with these words from Jesus. Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christian, you can say, I do not feel close to God. And that is an honest statement, right? Because that's talking about your feelings. But you cannot say God is far from me. You cannot say that. Because if you say as a Christian that God is far from me, what you are doing is you are calling Jesus a liar. Because Jesus says, I am with you always, always, always to the end of the age. And so, Christian, let me ask you, when is Jesus with you? When? Let this truth sink in. Because this changes our entire life. That whether you are waking or falling asleep, Jesus is with you. Whether you are eating dinner or cleaning the dishes, Jesus is with you. Whether you are on the mountaintop or down in the valley, Jesus is with you. Whether you are suffering or celebrating, Jesus is with you. Whether your heart is pure or overcome with sin, Jesus is with you. Whether you believe God's presence or are doubting his very existence, Jesus is with you. In all these times and in every other time, this great promise from Jesus is that he is with you. Now I want to make this crystal clear. Children of God, your spiritual amnesia and your spiritual doubts cannot trump the promises of Jesus. Let me explain it this way. If you forget that Jesus is with you, guess what? Jesus is still with you. If you do not believe that Jesus is with you, guess what? Jesus is still with you. Your spiritual amnesia and spiritual doubts cannot thwart or trump the promises of Jesus. And so in the midst of suffering, in the midst of attack, how do we stand strong? We claim our rights given to us by the providence of God. We confess our sins, applying the Bible to ourselves. Most importantly, we cling to our Christ. Because Jesus has risen. Because Jesus is risen. And because Jesus will be with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we do confess that we, <laughs> we struggle with spiritual amnesia. We struggle with doubt. 
And we thank you for the good news that you are not contingent on our belief, that you are not contingent on our, our ability to remember that you are with us, but that you are with us always, at all times, in every situation, for the rest of eternity because of your death and resurrection on the cross. Lord, as we, as we turn to your supper, would you remind us of how you are present with us, that you not only stand with us, that you're not only on our side, but that you actually also indwell us through your Holy Spirit. May we be reminded of this great truth. May we be encouraged that it's not, that it's not, um, that it's not dependent on our ability to have strong faith. And may we be strengthened, Lord, to remember this great truth that you are with us always to the very end of the age. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.